This was an interesting conversation with Ron Rutland. He is right now in Buenos Aires. That's where we connected for this uh, episode. And for the last 15 plus years of his life, he has been on these crazy adventures. And right now he's on his fourth adventure on a bicycle, cycling for 300 days and ending at the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup in France next year. So he's on day 20 of 300. It's the fourth time he's done something like this. And he has an official place with the Rugby World Cup. Now he's delivering the official match referee whistle for the opening game. So there's a goal in mind and there's a reason for him to keep going. And uh, well, this conversation was more about the backstory about who he is and where he came from and what it is to be an adventure person. And we had a lot of fun. But there's so much more to uh, his story, so I think there'll be an episode two and most likely even an episode three. But this episode covers Ron the Man and uh, how it is he ended up becoming this adventure cyclist and uh, all the interesting stories in between. Please enjoy the story, Ron Rutland. Where did I find you right now, Ron? You're in Buenos Aires. I am in Buenos Aires, first time here, uh, first time in Argentina, and uh, it's a yeah, fantastic city. Arrived late on, what are we now, Friday, arrived late Wednesday evening, and uh, yeah, spent an off day yesterday cycling 50Ks around the city. Okay, that's fantastic. Now, if I, if I can remember my sums correctly, you are probably on about, what, day 16 or so, is that right? Yeah, almost, day 20, uh, left New Zealand on the... 12th of November, and uh, this is my fourth consecutive uh, Rugby World Cup ride. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we can go into all the details later, but uh, in short, I cycled to London 2015, Japan 2019, New Zealand 2021, which is just finished now, the Women's World Cup, um, and now I'm on my way to France for the Men's World Cup in, in Paris next year. Well, it sounds amazing, and I don't want to, to get ahead of ourselves here, because let's just stay on Buenos Aires. You said it's your first time there. I've only been there once. And uh, when I flew for South African Airways, it was one of our destinations, BA. It was quite a sought after. Ezeza is the name of the airport. And uh, one of the, the rostering ladies called me aside as I was at work. I just, it was just coincidence. I happened to be at work that day. And she said, by the way, you've got a special request. And those special requests were you could ask for a specific flight once a year. Or actually, no, twice a year. Once every six months. And if no one else above you, senior to you, had that same special request, you would get it. So I was a junior in-flight relief pilot at the time. And she said, this, this flight's going to end and there aren't many six-day flights. And uh, what a six-day flight means is that on day one, you leave and on day six, you're back home. So you can imagine and do the sums. It gives me a lot of time in Buenos Aires. I had four full days in Buenos Aires, took my family along, loved the city. Uh, Tres Boca is the area that we explored a lot, those rivers, the restaurants on the rivers, the, just that whole lifestyle was a bit kind of, um, uh, what's that place in the Eastern Cape near Jeffreys Bay? Oh, just lost the name now. St. Francis Bay, that kind of, it, it had a bit of a vibe to that, but a way more kind of uh, groovy and uh, yeah, cultural. Yeah, I'm and I'm it, it's, it's, I, I love St. Francis Bay. I think it's, there's a lot more going on here. <laughs> but, uh, you yeah, know, but it's, oh, there's a lot of like tree lined boulevards and a uh, really nice city to cycle in just from the, the day that I've been here so far. Um, and there's so much going on. And the one thing I still can't get used to um, in my time in South America so far is the, the sort of whole siesta concept and, you know, people meet you for dinner at 9 p.m. kind of thing. So, you know, which when you're on your bicycle, it's normally two hours into my sleep. So, um, you know, I just got to readjust the, the body clock a little bit. But, uh, yeah, very cosmopolitan, very uh, European, Southern European feel to it. And uh, so far, yeah, got to, and planned a few days off yet for that exact reason to explore a bit. Did I understand you correctly now? You said it was your off day and you cycled 50 Ks around the city. 
Oh, yeah, it was. It's been a big, big push to get here. I actually had a, a, an engagement with Rugby Argent, Union Argentina de Rugby. Argentine rugby yesterday afternoon, uh, so I had to get to get to Buenos Aires for that, and uh, cycled up to their offices and found myself taking a big lazy loop back um, to the Airbnb I'm staying at. So uh, yeah, that's you know I guess it, it's it's a good sign that I still enjoy the bicycle and still enjoy it on my off days, and uh, but it's chilled riding and you can stop for a coffee and a beer here and there. So very different to the sort of 150k days across the, the central plains into the Harling Gales and the headwinds. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of wide open spaces, which uh, sounds very romantic. And I'm sure we're going to get into the detail of how at times it's not so romantic. But uh, okay, now it's a good time for me to just back up a little, because you've done a lot of things. And uh, if anyone had a look through your website, you'll see that you, uh, and maybe it's it's not politically correct to say, you're a bit of a crazy guy. You've done some wild things. And uh, I want to know where this comes from. So let's, let's rewind back to a time in your high school years, you know, impressionable time and what the world was offering you. As a 15, 16-year-old Ron, where, where that kind of age and stage in life where you're starting to think about what is possible and what, who are you looking at, who's role models, and, and what did you think that your life was going to sort of develop into at that point in time? Well, Alex, I'm lucky enough that um, I've got to share some of my stories pretty often at schools, and I often tell the, the boys or the girls or the, you know, the teenagers in the room, and I say, guys, when I was sitting there, uh, it, you know, in this, if, if the roles reversed 30 years ago, and I was listening to somebody talking about cycling around the world or talk, listening to somebody talking about something grand that they'd done. I would have looked at those people and go, wow, that's amazing. But that's, they obviously must be so much richer. They must be so strong. They must be so athletic. Um, so for me, it was, it was definitely something that was completely beyond anything I would have imagined. And it certainly is not the lifestyle that I dreamed, dreamed up growing up. I was born and brought up in Westville outside of Durban um, on the east coast of South Africa. I uh, went to the same, you know, went to junior school primary school high school all the way through at the same the same school uh obviously those days it was uh apartheid south africa um so all your friends growing up are english-speaking white south african males um my family didn't have any desire or the means quite frankly to go on big overseas trips i think we sort of took maybe two holidays down to mount Toti and growing up and that was considered a sort of a big road trip for us um, and perhaps once to go and visit the grandparents in the Eastern Cape. But um, so there certainly wasn't something that was, I was growing up in an environment of, of exploring and road trips and adventure. Um, but the one thing I do remember distinctive, distinctively uh, was reading National Geographic cover to cover every month. So that was the one magazine I would read. And uh, I remember reading those, those, those stories about, you know, whether were the scientists exploring um, some long lost caves in South America or, people in Antarctic or Arctic or people doing big road trips and adventure trips. And I'd always look at these people and go, my goodness, they must be what lives they're living. They must be, must be so exciting for them. and must be, they must just be, and basically I always just put it down to luck. They must just be so much, you know, born in, <laughs> into rich family or must be super clever scientists and things. But it was always something that I was never even considered. And I think to be, you know, fair to my parents, uh, you know, they were pretty conservative and, you know, my dad did the same job for kind of 40 years. Um, so it really wasn't an environment sort of, you know, I guess we was encouraged to think broadly and to think of, you know, craziness and to think of, you know, things off the, off the, off the sort of the normal track of life. Um, you know, it was always about what degree you're going to get, what's, what, you know, the moment you finish university, you've got to get your first, you know, go and get your first job kind of thing. So, um, but deep inside of me, I think I had this, this streak wanting to do something different and approach life a bit differently. And it took me a long time to actually act on that. 
Okay, well, I mean, those National Geographic magazines, they're, they're a classic. And I don't know if it's just a South African culture, but I mean, I remember them clearly. And, and it's just, you can talk to anyone of our sort of age. Uh, I grew up us in the same age group. Uh, I hope that's a, that's a fair assessment. But uh, I'll, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, I mean, the no. National Geographic was a, was a feature. It's a beautiful thing. Great photos. I didn't read too many of the stories, but I did enjoy the magazines. And uh, in my primary school in Cape Town, uh, we used to, I can't remember, just as you were talking now, it came to me. We used to watch uh, from time to time, I don't know if it was every second week or whatever, and what, whatever class it was, but we would watch that National Geographic video, and it was almost like a, was it one of those kind of tape things that was spinning, and I remember, da, 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 remember that, like, National Geographic, and uh, I don't know who the person was. But anyways, that, that resonates with me too. So was it looking at these magazines at the time and transporting yourself in time thinking, I could do that, or just saying, wow, those people, and that would never be me? Yeah, I think more the second. I, I would look at those people and go, I wish I could do something like that. Um, but my, yeah, but just my, my mind just didn't, just didn't even conceive that it was something that was possible for me. Um, which is, I guess, in hindsight, a little bit of a sad way of, 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 of thinking as a teenager. Those are the days you want to be thinking grand thoughts and, you know, one day I want to be a pilot or one day I want to be a, a big wave surfer or one day I want to be, you know, cycling around the world. Or one day I want to be a, you know, a surgeon in, uh, you know, some top university hospital in the UK or whatever it is. You want to be thinking like that, but, uh, uh, yeah, for some reason, you know, that, as I say, growing up, I just, you know, I was on this path of, uh, you know, going to go and do the safe degree at university, uh, finding a safe, secure job, you know, sort of got dad sort of trying to push you down to becoming an accountant or a lawyer, uh, that kind <laughs> of route. In, in some ways, I mean, you've got the model childhood. I mean, not the model childhood necessarily as it played out, but the model childhood is what people talked about saying, you know, at the same school, the same parents and stable job from the parents and never worrying about is there another meal on the table and just like the s- stable you know, A to B in existence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, I say, like, oh, you know, it's deli- you know, I'm very lucky. You know, there's, a, you know, having seen a bit of the world since then. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I've realised how lucky that upbringing was, and just, you know, to have a, you know, a roof over your head and to have three meals a day and to go to a good school and, you know, you you, you really are on the one percent without, you know, what we often think of the one percent. You know, as being the private jets and all that sort of thing. So, um. You know, so I think from that point of view, unbelievably lucky upbringing. I mean, I, I didn't particularly enjoy the sort of school environment. I didn't enjoy the, the I don't think the, the sort of the rigidity and the, mm. the structure of it well, that much. Clear. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I was years of your life, like very it. clear that that's not your thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't a rebel or anything. I just sort of put my head down and, you know, went through the, you know, went through the, the you know, went through the system and, you know, came out the other side and, you know, had it, you know, fair enough, you know, sort of always the B-class kind of stream. Um, and, uh, but the rugby was the one thing, the sport, playing sports was the one thing, that was probably my release. That's what I enjoyed most at school, for sure. Um, and, yeah, sort of put all my pent-up frustrations and energy from the sort of daytime in the classroom onto the rugby field and cricket field. And, and what, uh, what kind of level of rugby, you mentioned rugby in your website, what kind of level of rugby did you play then post-school? Uh, post school, yeah, I'd, I'd say an enthusiastic amateur. <laughs> it sort of gave me, um, you know, I sort of played in the, the, the sort of the top club division in, in, in Natal. I guess growing up, you, you you have these dreams of playing for the Sharks and the Springboks one day, and uh, yeah, that's sort of the, the reality. I mean, I, I, I think I gave it the best crack <laughs> that uh, that I, you know I gave the, sort of the, the best of my abilities, and yeah, I sort of played pretty competitive club rugby, and uh, it gave me an opportunity. And then, well, guess we'll come on to that. But the first time I actually left South Africa and got an opportunity to go overseas was thanks to rugby. Uh, finished university in Peter Marisburg and 
got opportunity to go play for a club in Brisbane, in Australia. Um, you know, it was what a kind of deal where they, they'll pay your flight and put you up in a house and give you a car kind of gig and, and organize your job, which ended up being as a, as a forklift driver. So that was kind of my gap year, I guess my, my plan gap year. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that, so in some ways, you know, I, I owe everything to rugby because they gave me that opportunity to go overseas and uh, it was 12 years later before I got back to South Africa. All right. So was that your first time overseas, did you say? Yeah, so that's correct. Yeah, so all the way through school and then uh, went to university in Peter Marisburg an hour off the road. And, and for me, that was quite a big break, you know, breakout, I guess. <laughs> massive. Um, yeah, massive. You know, I was quite happy. I would say I was quite happy to leave home. I don't want to sound like I was running away from anything, but it was quite oh, a sure. nice, yeah, to go and sort of be my own man spread for a few wings. years. And, uh, you know, yeah, I spread your wings a bit. And, it's only, and, and I think that, yeah, it was a very, you know, important decision in hindsight. Um, a lot of my friends from, from Westville and from the school I was at, you know, went to the university down the road in Durban and carried on stayed at home. And, you know, and I think going to Maritzburg and just, as say, spreading your wings, uh, meeting people from different schools, different backgrounds, uh, people who mm. sort of just were a little bit more worldly and wisely and ambitious, I guess. Uh, mm. It was, you know, in addition to just having a thoroughly good time. Um, it, Tell it, me, what did you, you study in the end? You, you, were, you were suggested that you did accounting or something like that. What, what did you study? Yeah, I started off the accounting routes and then quite quickly realized that for a year or two, it left quite a bit too much application. I just really had no interest. So uh, I bailed out. I, I, I did finish the degree, but I, did, I went down and just basically took a logistics and marketing. That seemed to be the, the easiest route to, to walking out with something at the end. Uh, but it was lovely. I mean, it was an incredible four years of my life. Um, mm. you know, I, I look back at it and you know, I can't tell you anything I've probably learned you know, specifically around economics or accounting or marketing or anything, but uh, yeah, but that time I life and just yeah, you know, being independent um, and as I say, the people that, that that I met in that time of life and um, yeah, and just the rugby and everything that came with that that lifestyle was just mm. right up my alley. Well, it sounds amazing, and I mean, I'd like to echo those kind of thoughts that uh, when I speak to schools as well, it's it's the university or the the post school education that you get involved in it's not about the textbook it's about everything else that goes with it you have to apply yourself into something and there's the deadlines and disciplines required but it's about all the other things and that's the whole process and uh, certainly you would have been applying yourself into rugby and friendships and then uh, this this uh, journey overseas did you end up staying consecutively for 12 years away or was it kind of an in and out 12 years no, I guess I came back for the odd wedding and the odd, you know, the odd holiday here and there, but it, it was 12 years in the end. And um, the plan was to go and you know, spend six months in Brisbane, play a bit of rugby, um, save a bit of cash and then travel for six months um, and then come back to South Africa and, and get on with my life. And hopefully that was going to give me the answer to what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and uh, yeah, so six months and it was amazing. I went right off the bat. You know, Brisbane, it's a wonderful city, It's not, but it's still not, you know, off the, in the bigger scheme of things, not the most cosmopolitan place in the world. But all of a sudden, you know, I was, my rugby team there was full of Fijians and, uh, you know, Aussies and Kiwis and uh, Tongans and, you know, Samoans. And so it was just a much more, you know, eclectic and uh, diverse bunch of people. And, uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed that environment. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, you know, celebrating games differently, you know. Some of the Fijians, they went to two distinct camps, some of them, you know, love beer as much as the rest of us. And some of them were sort of very God-fearing religious people who would go home and spend the evening with their family and drink a bowl of kava, you know. And uh, so some, if you want to socialize with them. Tell me what a kava is then, because I don't know. Educate me. No, a kava, a K-A-V-A or C-A-V-A. It's, it's basically, a, it's, a, it's a root. Um, so it's, it, you, it looks, it's terrible. So you sort of crush this root into basically a, a stocking, an old-fashioned stocking, and it makes, it makes it a tea bag. And, it's, and, it, and you mix it in water in a big sort of wooden bowl um, okay. and it, yeah, it produces this 
this liquid, which is, looks like dirty dishwater, it tastes a little bit like dirty dishwater with a bit of bitterness. <laughs> it does give you a little bit of a buzz. Um, oh, and okay. uh, right. yeah, so it's it's a way. It's a very traditional thing in Fiji and, and the Pacific Islands, and uh, and it's a kind of carver ceremony. So everybody will sit around on the floor, um, neat, um, okay. sort of cross-legged and pass the bowl around and around the table. So it's just a great way to sort of yeah, just be able to socialize with people that otherwise you wouldn't be able to socialize with, and uh, quite enjoyed it. Well, that sounds great. I mean, I'm quite actually, as you were describing, I was thinking, oh, this doesn't sound very. You're not making it sound very appetizing. But then you yeah. said it does give you a bit of a buzz. I'm keen to try any kind of cultural thing that has like the ceremony appeal yeah. side to it that can give you some kind of a buzz. So next time I'm in that part of the world, I'm going to look it up. Thanks for that little tip. <laughs> but okay, so I mean, <laughs> it sounds like. A, <laughs> oh well, so it sounds like you you um you know this was quite a, an eye opening and a, certainly broadening your your mind and your idea of what's possible but at this stage of your life you know you get into like 30 odd uh, is there a family that's featuring with you there or are you are you just kind of playing rugby and just uh, enjoying life no you know, no Alex I'm still 20, 22 at this stage I just straight out of university and no no as you stopped so, but you were there for 12 years oh sorry no 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 well no no I must expand on that sorry I wasn't in, okay. in Australia for 12 years no no so um uh, yes, the plan, the, sorry the plan was to go and, and spend six months traveling afterwards but um during that season uh my coach and the team he actually got a job to go and coach in Hong Kong um okay. which is obviously opposite hemisphere from you know northern hemisphere and yeah. uh, he said Ron the, the club that he's going to go and coach there they're looking for a hooker um did I want to go and, and play a you know back-to-back season after this season and go and play a stint in in, in, in Hong Kong same sort of uh you know, same sort of gig, same sort of deal. Um, and what made the decision, I mean, I had to look where Hong Kong was on the map, but, uh, you know, what made, to make the decision slightly easier is that I actually went with another South African originally to Australia to go and we played the, oh. we played the same club. We were going to travel together and he actually met a, an Aussie girl um, and fell head over heels in love with her. So I think he was looking for an excuse to get out of the six months of travel with me anyway. So I wasn't like I was abandoning him. And uh, yeah, so I went up to Hong Kong and, um, and ended up spending a follow-up season there and absolutely loved it i mean hong kong it was just it was 1997 um i literally arrived in that, i think sure. july Great a month time to be in hong kong eh? yeah wow. month after the handover uh you know flew into the old airport there it was uh you know it was at that period Ooh. it was just between the old and the new airport so it was a wonderful time yes. to be there in hindsight and uh yeah again 22 a week behind the years and uh yeah, i grew up quickly there and <laughs> and um it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun and really really enjoyed the rugby season did you have a bit of a job there too? Like, I mean, because Hong Kong is not a cheap place to live. So what did no, you have to look all. after um, financially? Yeah, so it was the kind of same kind of gig, you know. They, they put me up in an apartment, uh, with a shared apartment with a couple of other players. Um, so, that you know, that's a big expense in Hong Kong. So I had that covered. Yeah. Um, and then, they, you know, I think they gave us a few hundred bucks, you know, for, you know, as pocket money for the games. But they did organize me a job, actually. I worked at a financial services company. I was literally stuffing okay. envelopes. Sending out promotional emails and things like that, but making it um, work. But uh, yeah, but it was good fun. I mean, and you know, that was effectively all pocket money. And uh, and, and the six previous six months in Brisbane, I've been working as a forklift operator, and actually thoroughly enjoyed that. It was quite nice to do something. You know, I guess a bit. You know, what we in South Africa would think of as blue collar, and something you probably, mm. you know, not often get opportunity to do. And uh, you know, the characters you meet doing doing jobs like that was uh, yeah, it was again much more. You know, just meet more diverse people. You know, if I'd gone straight from university and got a job working in Standard Bank in Joburg, you know, it'd be cool and you'd you know, get a nice salary and things, but uh, you kind of know the kind of people that you're going to be hanging around at the coffee table, you know, the, the coffee shop yeah. with. So, um, so anyway, I really I actually enjoyed that aspect but, of it. The, the, the job but in Hong Kong was a little bit 
you're going you're going a bit fast there so i just want to linger on this blue collar stuff for a moment because there's a sense of this that i see in my life too you know we have these all these grand ideas of being whatever an entrepreneur or some successful business person or an accountant doctor surgeon whatever it is where you are uh, have lots of responsibility and perhaps make a lot of money in these big deals. But yet the day-to-day ticking off things on a list is actually quite uh, meaningful as an individual. Like if you iron your shirt, at the end of it, you look at your shirt and it looks good and you've done something and you can, you know, if, you, if you're a forklift operator and you're moving a pile of stuff from that side onto trucks or into those shelves, at the end you can look back at the day and say, I've moved everything from there, it's now there, and I feel satisfied. And in the yeah. same way, if I get kind of wound up in my head sometimes, you know, this happens from time to time, uh, and I need to just uh, bring myself back in line. I go and do stuff with my hands, whether it's, uh, I mean, I don't often iron a shirt, but I can find even just ironing a shirt or straightening something or just, oh, I don't mow the lawn too often, but going for a walk or doing something like manual that you can see the effects of your labor immediately. It really does tick off something inside me. Yeah, I completely agree, Alex. And I must say, yeah, that satisfaction, we used to, it was actually a cotton warehouse, so these bales of, of cotton would come in from the, the cotton fields and uh, I mean they weighed I think 250 kilos each but you'd pull them off the back of a truck and yeah so a truck pulls in you've got to empty the truck of its stuff and you and stack up the the, 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 the the bales of cotton there and then another container truck comes in and you pack them into containers so they get shipped off to um, somewhere in Asia and yeah and then when you put the nice thing is when you check out at the end of the day you, you, you give your forklift a hose down and you go home and you've got nothing on your mind you know all you need to do yeah. you completely switch off you can get Go and do whatever you want to go and do at home, whether it's something as boring as watching TV, whether it's going out with your mates, whether it's you don't have a phone on you, like the people hassling yeah. you from the office and emails coming through and that sort of thing. So, um, but it is something tangible. I mean, we'll go into the guest later on, but you know, later on in life, um, some of the jobs I did were literally just moving numbers around a spreadsheet. And you know, I'm sure that mm. you know, that feels they are, you know, they are important in inverted commas jobs that that doesn't involve and requires that kind of work. But um, you know, you'd work your also basically excuse the expression for 12 hours a day and you feel like you've achieved absolutely nothing you know yeah because you might be working on a a nine month or a 24 month project and nothing's going to change from day to day and maybe you get to see these glimpses every five years something kicks off or you know you look back at a 10-year career and you say these three projects 18 months some of the sides are that projects no we don't want that project anymore and just says okay we're scrapping that and you've done 18 months of work for nothing or whatever it is so um no but as yeah certainly as i've got older and uh, i certainly do appreciate and sometimes often think you know like it's yeah, just the tangibility of doing something, yeah, just tangible and real. There's a real, there's a real um, satisfaction to that. Well, you're doing that right now. I mean, every day you're ticking off X number yeah. of kilometers and you're tangibly moving yourself along the earth. You were in city A, now you're in town B. And, you, and, and again, you're probably interacting with a lot of blue-collar people now. So <laughs> how awesome was that foundation that you had in these forklift and cotton mills and all those basic things because you can relate. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's certainly an element of that you put together. You know, this, you know, I enjoy the planning, don't get me wrong, and that does involve sitting in front of a computer and looking at Google Maps yeah. and you know working out rough schedules and things like that. But day to day, that's it. You know, you wake up and you've got nothing to think about. You 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 wake up, you get out of your tent, you make a cup of coffee, you pack your tent down, you you know put on the same set of clothes you had yesterday, and you start pedaling. And it's and you don't know, like within that day, there's so much surprise and variety and you know that that i mean some of those jobs that we talked about do become quite repetitive i guess but you know like this is i enjoy the repetitiveness of this and knowing that each day really is you know it's a surprise around every corner and whether it's the mm. most you know the most what might seem the most innocuous experience those are actually found often the richest you know whether it's a 
And then I, and again, I'll keep going ahead of myself here, but just that's one of the great things of cycling in particular, because there's no noise. Mm. You're going at a pace, at a pace where you can engage with people just standing on the side of the road. And whether it's a smile here and a glance there or a wave there or somebody mm. waving you down and offering you a glass of water or something like that. So, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Going back to your point, it really is like there's a big picture in mind of getting from A to B, but, uh, there's a, there's a routineness of it. Um, mm. there's a, there's a tangibility of it. And it's, yeah, it, and the people you meet, the, the best beers I have in the world, you know, people invite me to fancy hotels and you, you go and ask cold goblet and a glass comes out of the fridge and it's fantastic. But, uh, the best beers in the world are on plastic tables and chairs on the side of the road. And, uh, or somebody, mingling yeah, with the locals, mingling with the locals. Yeah. So it's, you know, guys just got off their shift of, you know, cleaning the road yeah. for the day or whatever it is. And, um, and often yeah. don't share a word of each other's language, but there's something about a cold beer at the end of a, of a hard day's work and a proper day's work. Um, yeah, but, you know, you used to cycle 100 k's through sort of dust-ridden fields that have been working in the fields today, and you share a beer at the end of it. There's a different commonality there. So was it? So then you said it was 12 years you were out of South Africa, and then oh, you came yeah. back. And the other thing you've mentioned is that you a failed entrepreneur. You know, uh, I suppose yeah, it depends okay, on what your uh, definition of. I've also had a bit of a, a entrepreneurial journeys along the way, but I'm curious to know about when it is that you sort of wind up the 12 years, and what's the next phase? What is? How does that kick off for you? Yeah, okay, Alex. Yeah, this 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 right. I'll be I'll be boring your audience for hours, but no. no so from Hong Kong, um, the plan was originally to go back to South Africa, but a lot of my friends at that stage, university friends in particular, were were doing the two year working holidays in London. Yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to have a British passport, so I went to London there, and um, they were most of them and, and my crowd of mates were working in banks and um, sort of finance companies, and you know, doing very mundane back office jobs there. You know, we'd all done Microsoft Office yeah. courses, which made us sort of super yeah. qualified in those, in those days. Um, and kind of got sucked into that world. And it was fantastic. Spent four or five years in London um, working in various sort of contracting roles uh, in, in these banks. You sort of felt like you, you were being paid a relative fortune to do, uh, yeah. again, seemingly meaningless work, but, you know, moving numbers around a spreadsheet. But, um, you know, but coming out at the end of the day, you know, you had disposable income. Um, just being young, being in London, you know, having Europe on your doorstep every time there was a test match in Dublin or Cardiff or Edinburgh, you know, you jump on the train or a local easy jet flight and go and watch a game for the weekend. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and then after five years there, um, I got an opportunity to get involved in a, I guess, a startup in, in Thailand of all places. And uh, oh, it's wow. a whole story on its own. So it's a South African friend of mine who was involved in a business in South Africa and was looking for somebody to help him. They were looking for, to raise some capital and expand into Asia. Um, so in hindsight, I'm probably the sucker that put my hand up for that. And, uh, you know, I guess at that stage I was, I was looking for, to, you know, I realized that, you know, I looked at people in my office, you know, at that stage I'd be doing the same job for kind of two years at the same company. And, um, I looked at people in my office sort of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years older ahead of me. And I just said, I just couldn't face doing what I was doing for another 20, 30 years. So, um, I guess uh, it was a bit of some, somewhere inside of me. I wanted a bit of a, a business adventure uh, to try something different, to try something of my own. Uh, but my, I certainly had my people that, had, you know, at this stage of my life, I guess I had enough friends that had gone off and done different things, you know, not just the sort of, um, you know, the corporate thing. And uh, some of them had failed spectacularly. Some of them made massive successes. And uh, I guess I backed myself to give it a crack. Um, and then that in itself was, a, was a, I had a bit of a choice, basically between, I think it came down to Indonesia thailand philippines as the three countries where i could go and set up and uh and the way it started i literally went to a travel agent and those a little bit before the days of just you know going online and doing the bookings i went to travel agents and uh, said where's the cheapest place to fly you know bangkok manila or jakarta and there was i think philippines air had a special to to manila so i went to spent a month there um didn't you know never been there uh you know 
rented a cheap service apartment for a month and, and try to get things off the ground. And while I was there, I had a lead in Thailand, went to Bangkok and did the same thing and ended up spending three years in Thailand um, setting up wow. this business in the telecoms. And uh, it was, I mean, it was a spectacular failure from a business point of view. And uh, But a very expensive MBA is my is the positive way I look at it. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I went to a country I'd never been to, couldn't speak a word of the language. Um, we're just about profitable at one stage. Uh, so it was, yeah, sort of, a, it was a certain amount of achievement there, uh, in its own right. But, um, mm. but things that happened while I was in Thailand, you know, in hindsight, which were just my sort of release from work, which is I've never worked, you know, when it's your own money and it's skin in the game, you never work any harder than your life. But, uh, you know, at sure. the same time, also again, play rugby there, um, oh, okay. and, and got involved in a rugby, in like a social rugby tournament there. So that, which, which I'll come back to now. So anyway, and then after, you know, three years there, um, you know, cost me everything financially uh, i had to get back on my feet um and all i knew i guess from a corporate point of view was banking so um i couldn't face going back to, well i didn't really feel like going back to london i was enjoying asia so i got a took up a job in hong kong for a couple of years um but it, during that period in hong kong working for a, a dutch bank um i used to keep going back to bangkok for the this tournament that we started which, which started while i was there uh, called the bangkok tens which is a, a tennis side rugby festival um okay. and uh, the one year um well, I came, the Fed of Cape Town and yours, Rob Fleck came out and played. And uh, he said, Ron, this would work so well in Cape Town. Um, anyway, okay. so after about 100 beers over the course of the weekend, him, myself, him and Bob Skinstead said, well, we should, start a, we should start an event like this in South Africa in Cape Town. And um, okay. anyway, Monday morning, I flew back to Hong Kong. When, when, is, when is this? What year? Is this about 2006? Uh, yep, exactly right. So maybe a couple yeah, of years I, later, I 2006. Seven, eight, actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember something about this. I remember hearing something about Okay, okay. I'm, yeah, yeah, so anyway, I went back to Hong Kong, and, you know, it was one of those that I didn't think a huge amount of, about it. Like, it was just I was back at work on Monday, a little bit hungover, and, uh, you know, just off the high, in some ways, the high of the weekend of your mates, but also just that sort of the black dogs that do chase you after a big weekend. And uh, um, and then Flecky phoned me probably four days later, and he said, Ron, I've just been speaking to his boss at the time, and uh, Greg likes the idea. You're the only guy who's got any experience. And because I was quite involved in running the event in Thailand, he said, Well, why don't you come back and do it? You're saying how much you hate your job and things like that. So, um, okay. this is 2008, actually, just before the global financial crisis. But, you know, I didn't see it coming by any means. But, uh, so I thought, you know what, why not? I haven't been, I haven't lived in South Africa for 12 years. I've never lived in Cape Town. Um, Cape Town's a bit of a foreign city to me. It's, you know, I've been for the odd <laughs> wedding or rugby match, but, uh, you know, it should, should be a bit of an adventure. Let me, let's go and give us a it's crack. Beautiful, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so, saying, it's yeah, beautiful, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 which I found out, you know, and everybody, all Catonians will tell you that. And, um, so, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, packed up, left my job in Hong Kong, um, and returned to SA, you know, for, first time, for the first time properly in 12 years and, um, moved straight to Cape Town. Um, and the plan, I guess, was to, I was going to give myself six months to see, you know, run the, get the first tournament off the ground, see what happened. Um, and it ended up being quite a success and, you know, set up the, the inaugural Cape Town tens as, as, I think it was 2009 was our first event. Um, and again, it was building something tangible. Nobody in South Africa had ever, at that stage had ever heard about the idea of tennis side rugby. Uh, and uh, yeah, it sort of seemed to you know hit a nerve with people and um, we built it from there. And you know, and again, for the first time in my life, I was probably doing something that I really, really passionate, passionate yeah. about the actual job. Like as much as I was passionate about the business in Thailand, I was passionate because primarily because I had money in the game and I was keen to achieve something and build something from scratch. But the industry I had no interest in, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, in the industry I was really interested in, thoroughly enjoyed, you know, Cape Town, uh, a whole new crowd of people, a whole new way of life. Um, and it was, yeah, building something tangible, which people came to and had a great time. Mm. And um, 
Yeah. Yeah, so ran out okay, but, but t- so so this is now a business, and you employed in this. You you, you can live on this. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so three, four okay. of us, basically four of us in the end set it up. I was the yeah, four of us owned the business. I was drawing a salary out of it, and uh, yeah, so it wasn't as extravagant lifestyle as I would have had, you know, working in my job in Hong Kong. But as I say, the you know, I've, net net, it was a much better life for me. Um, and Bob and I actually also started a charity at the same time, which I which I kind of ran in parallel as well. So I had these sort of two parallel worlds of mine running the rugby event and running this charity and and both of them i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed and you know got me out of bed every morning just paycheck or no paycheck you know i was just really enjoying them um and also just you know being a and by this stage i was in you know this is now early 30s i guess yeah early 30s and um and uh you know my rugby and i played rugby you know wherever i went to a new city i played as seriously as i could and cape town now i was involved in the business but sort of Playing more socially and less interested in the, in the, you know, trying to get myself, you know, beat myself, you know, beat myself up on a rugby field. Um, but I said, and then you know, like a lot of ex players or people have played, you know, you want to carry on doing something. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, I was going to, I was going to just blow up and be fat and useless. And uh, you know, everyone in, in my circles into sort of trail running and mountain biking. So I kind of okay. got into those two worlds. And um, although I was pretty rubbish at both of them, you know, I find it really to be a good engine. So I was like, I would have a tractor that could take along. And, uh, but it was a great way to explore Table Mountain, a great way to explore the Western Cape uh, on a bicycle and on the trails. And um, I guess, again, uh, make all these decisions. I came back to set up a rugby tournament. And, but as a, as a, as a byproduct of being in Cape Town, got into cycling. And um, I guess we'll get onto that just now. But that, yeah, that changed my life in a different way. Well, I mean, let's get into it. I mean, there's there's no script yet, so let's get into the, the cycling then. So, I mean, uh, is it around this journey that you're connecting the dots with rugby? I mean, it, it must be. I, I just the whole time you're talking, I can hear every time we get into rugby specifically, you kind of get a little bit more fired up and passionate in a similar way to when people talk to me about either my podcast or flying, because right. you know they, they, those fires burn strong and hot. So, I mean, for you to be involved in the Rugby World Cup must be amazing. So, tell me about the journey that takes you from this phase. That actually yeah. gets you involved with the the first official uh, engagement with the the Rugby World Cup and delivering that whistle. How do you how do you join those dots? Well, Alex, you're, 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 you're going to be sorry. You're going to be sorry you asked again. But uh, no, it's a slightly Not longer story. So, uh, no, <laughs> I like long stories. I, I like long yeah, stories. No, so I was yeah, I, was saying, I got into I got into the cycling and um, again having a few you know I had a few operations and things like that. So the trail running was great fun, but I could see there was a yeah, there was a certain long you know. My ambitions there were sort of relatively modest, but um, I really got into the cycling and um, and again just during this whole period, you know, it's been a you know it's been a much more wild adventure of a life than I probably ever imagined. You know, this life overseas and trying different things. Um, but again, it was. But at the same period of time in my life, I, you know, I started reading more and more books and stories about people doing crazy things. So mm-hmm. every time I, I got a bit of a you know weakness for book sh- old school bookshops, so I love walking into the bookshops and reading. They're going to travel and adventure yeah. section, and I've read every book there is about people cycling around the world. Um, it's like stories Rian, about is it Rian Mansa around Africa on a bicycle? That kind of stuff. Hundred percent. Uh, his book was amazing. I watched every documentary. Yeah. You know, whether it's the the classics, you know, the, well, the modern classics of Ewan McGregor and his mate, Oof, you know, going around me. the world up and down and those sort of things. Um, but you know, even more mo- you know, modern stories about people just taking their family out of school for a year and living out of a camper van, you know, in Southern mm-hmm. Africa. And so I just read all these things and people doing quirky things and I just thought like and as I got more you know older into my 30s I thought oh I just love I really 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 would love to do something like one of like a crazy adventure like this and um, I've done a little dabble a little bit of motorbikes when I was living in Asia and I'd go on like little week trips here and there but nothing you know it was always just holidays yeah. um, 
And then I think getting into this world of endurance world, you know, in Cape Town, I started meeting some and just being in a slightly different you know, group of people, um, you know, outside of rugby, yeah. actually, people that went running instead of watching rugby over the weekends. Like, I started meeting some people that actually done some pretty cool things. Uh, Rion was one yeah. of them, but, but, other, but certainly other people as well. And so for the first time in my life, you know, I had this, I realized, um, you know, the only difference between that person that's gone and cycled around Africa or that person that's gone and done that big motorbike trip there or that person that's gone and done that is that they made the decision to do it. They're not stronger. They're not richer. They're not, you know, braver. They're just, the only difference is they had an idea and acted upon it. And I've always had a million ideas in my mind about what I'd like to do, never actually acted upon it. And, uh, you know, always believed that it, you know, I wasn't good enough effectively. Um, Mm. so, you know, it's, it wasn't like a light bulb moment, but it was like this drip feeding effect of meeting more and more people like this and just, and, and realizing that there's no difference between, between these people. And I think also it's just, I was in a really good headspace in that time in Cape Town in general, let's say doing something I was really enjoying, uh, doing something that was, you know, really, really rewarding. So I think I was just in a generally more of a open-minded, positive mindset. Um, mm. and that's some of the irony, I guess, is that, for, you know, doing, I guess, two jobs, the rugby and the charity that I was really enjoying, um, actually probably led me to make a decision, you know what, let's, I want to get on a bicycle and cycle through Africa. So that's, for, that's how it kind of, it, it morphed into a plan. So I pulled out a map of Africa and I said, I want to cycle from Cape to Cairo. So that's yeah. a classic overland route up the East coast, effectively of Africa. Um, yeah. you know, 10 or 12,000 kilometers. It's very well documented. Um, hundreds of thousands of people have done it on you know overland vehicles motorbikes there's even an annual bicycle ride now called the tour d'afrique or i think it's every two years from Cairo to cape town fully supported you can do different legs you can do the whole thing pay 10 or twelve thousand euros and you know what a great adventure so there's a lot of resources out there on planning a trip up you know a cape to Cairo overland trip and, and as i already read so many books and blogs about it that uh, in my mind i kind of knew what, what needed to be done and uh, but i think for me what what was one of the key things that before I started actually, um, before I started telling people, I was actually started taking a bit of action, you know? So, so for example, yeah, on this stage, I, you know, it wasn't just like, I uh, go to the pub on a Friday night and tell my mates, I'm going to go and cycle through Africa. And then everybody tells you, you know, oh, you're going to get malaria. What about your job? All these other things, you know, so yeah. you're going to be kidnapped. And, um, so, uh, you know, and then as the, as the, you know, so the plan was to do a six month sabbatical, get somebody else to run the, you know, the tens for six months, go and cycle, go to Cairo, come back and carry on. Um, and then as I pulled out this map of Africa, like I looked and I very, very distinctively remember, um, this part of it. So I was looking at the, at the routes up through East Africa and I thought, oh, I've heard so much about Uganda. So let me include you, you know, let me take a bit of a detour and go and include Uganda, um, which is not. Can I, can I pause you for a second? I want to pause you for yeah. one second. Yeah. You know that about, you don't know, I'm going to tell you <laughs> about seven <laughs> years ago, we used to, we used to fly up and down to Uganda on a Saturday. I think it was a Saturday. I used to fly in the cargo division of the SAA. We used to go and yeah. fetch a bunch of flowers through Nairobi and Uganda was one of the trips. So we're going to Nintebi. I just yeah. looked at this place. I used to go there, you know, once or twice a month. And I was like, it's just so beautiful. One day I said like, bugger this i put my bicycle on the plane with me we flew off there because we used to sit at a hotel all day i thought well i'm not sitting on a hotel took my bicycle got driven at a hotel i said cheers to the captain on my bike and i spent the rest of the day just cycling out towards kampala and it was beautiful it was just such a beautiful thing yeah i mean you there you've got you've got like a a six or seven hour window of how amazing it is exploring the world on a bicycle it is just like i mean taking a pair of running shoes to a new city is great you know you go for a run and that sort of thing but there's yeah. something about the bike, just the, the, the distance and the range that a bike gives you. And, uh, 
Oh no, and it's it's a it's just such a wild part of the world, oh. So, uh, it is. so okay, so, it's, so that was calling you and decided, well, I can't just go up the East Coast. Now I need to tick off this one and then obviously the next to the next. Yeah, if you're going to go into Uganda, you might as well go into Burundi and Rwanda. And then kind of, Ooh. and then it was more like, and then I was sitting with this map of Africa and I was saying, I wonder if it's like, just out of curiosity, as I'm planning the routes, I think, I wonder if it's possible to find a route that goes through every country on mainland Africa, like all these 48 countries. And um, so I Googled a bit and realized, you know, nobody had ever done a journey through every country in Africa and single continuous journey. I, I certainly couldn't find any record of it. Um, yeah. So I took, took a black marker pen and I spent all night. It was like, it was basically all night because it's, it's quite difficult. You know, you, you start in Cape, say, okay, all classic African overland routes start in Cape Town or in Cape Town. So Cape Town. Um, so if I'm going to do every country, I've got to go to Vintuk, I've got to go to Namibia and Lesotho. So now that's all of a sudden your first decision. <laughs> so, you know, do you go north or do you go east? Um, yeah. so, you, you, so anyway, so Kalong, yeah, so I spent hours and hours trying to work out a route. And eventually, and also Googling just to make sure which borders, were, you know, some countries, the border, the land borders are closed between different countries. Mm. So mm. Um, eventually plotted this route from Cape Town to Cairo that went through every country on mainland Africa. And that was, the, and, I, and, and realized that it was theoretically anyway possible, like from a political point of view and, you know, basically mm. from a political point of view. And, um, and it's the moment I drew that line and realized that it was possible. I said, that's what I want to do. So I'm going to go and spend six months on a sabbatical. I'm going to take some time out of my life. Let's go and do something absolutely wild, completely life-changing, completely different. Um, Before you move on to the next phase, I want to just uh, pause you and let's dial back another 20 years when you're sitting with that National Geographic. Now, can you you connect the dots that you're sitting on Google Maps? It's the modern-day National Geographic plan your adventure where you saw photos and stories before. Now you're seeing possibilities and routes and you can really make it live. You You can bring this thing to life through Google Maps. Oh, it's amazing. You can literally like zoom in, like all these places that, you know, came, as I say, literally like in the back of my mind, all these countries, like it was probably, it was probably even Zaire in those days or you know, whatever, like, you know, like Senegal and all these countries that, you know, and Chad and you're like, I, I remember Chad for some reason, like I think it was playing, I can't remember what game it was. It, maybe it was Risk or one of these games where you've got like the, the world map and for some reason Chad always, you know, I always had a mate called Chad and I've, I find it quite funny <laughs> as a kid that there was a country called Chad, you know, and, um, yeah. and so now you're sort of like, you're zooming in all these countries and you, and you're going with Google earth, you're like zooming in right and you can see, well, I can actually physically ride across, a ride across the Southern Sahara, across Sudan into Chad. Um, and there is a road there, um, you know, and, um, so yeah, and, and you do, you can literally, as you say, link up all these places that you've, you've you, you know, you have dreams of flying into or, or driving to or whatever. And, um, yeah, as you say, yeah, for sure. I think deep down inside, I mean, this had all been, this is like, this is not 35 years of life or 36 or 37 years of life where all these different, mm-hmm. um, experiences and, and, and inputs have now sort of, you know, come, uh, come to this moment with the map of Africa. Um, yeah. and you know, and again, like, you know, now I can tell you if you if you give me a blank blank map of Africa with all the the country names, I could rattle them all off to you right off the bat. You know, so it's like it's amazing when you you know. And before that, you I go to schools, I go to high schools, I go to I ask my mates how many countries in Africa, and you know, very few people even maybe, know. Maybe, well, uh, is it is it like thirty six or something? Yeah, thirty four, thirty six. Well, there's fifty four countries in Africa, but six islands, so I excluded those, and there's forty eight okay. countries mainland okay. Africa. Yeah, so that's always a good geography question. Just trying to get the six island nations. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> right, let's not go too deep. I'm gonna, you're going to expose myself here. <laughs> no, 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 and uh, yeah. Anyway, one of the, anyway. So it's, it was a anyway, so I planned this whole route, and uh, and then I realized, well, this is going to be 
30,000 kilometers, not 12,000 kilometers, you know, by the time. And it's a proper zigzag. I mean, it's again, if you, for those of you that are listening that, you know, don't have a really good picture of the map of Africa or, or just to try to envision how difficult it is to plan a route. I mean, it literally generally started off going in a northeasterly direction. So from South Africa into Lesotho, back in the South Africa to Swaziland, into Mozambique. And then you sort of come west of this and you know, went into to Zim and to Zambia and to Botswana and crossed the Kapibi Strip, but went back into Zim and up to Angola and back into Zim across the Copper Belt and across the bottom of the DRC and back into Zambia and to Malawi. And so you kind of like, and then you end up in Ethiopia, you know, you go up through uh, Ethiopia into Somalia into Djibouti, and then you got to start the big haul across, you know, across Eritrea and Sudan and Chad and back to West Africa, and then you actually come south again into Congo, Brazzaville and Gabon, and then you head north again. So it really is a, a it's a very, very, and it's effectively, and then, yeah, so that was, was probably 30, 30, I can't remember the top of my head now, 30,000 Ks, I guess, so it probably triples the length of it, um, yeah. you know, and and, and obviously, you know, having read enough stories about people cycling on the world, you kind of get a rough idea of the distances that people do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realized this is going to be a, a two-year project at least. Um, so six months wasn't going to cut it anymore. No, it wasn't going to cut it anymore. So this now became a completely, this was no longer a sabbatical. This was a, a this was like an all-in thing in life. So I started the process. I sold every single thing in the world I owned, Alex. If I couldn't get 10 Rand on Gumtree, um, I gave it away, or, and um, and that was partly to help fund it because when you tell people you're going to go and cycle through every country in Africa and potential sponsors and things like that, they just look at you. And literally, the the head of marketing at APSA, and it's a long story. The first question she said to me, "What happens if you die?" You know, as a brand, as a brand, I go, "Well, I don't know. It's your problem, not mine." You know, once I'm dead, I'm like, <laughs> I won't I'm not be here anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, and, and you know, I probably spent three or four nights of my life in a tent. I certainly never. Yeah, I'd done some mountain biking around Cape Town, but I'd never like, cycled from a point A to point B. So I guess people had right to be skeptical. But um, for me, in the back of my mind, like it was, it was burning the boats or burning the bridges. You know, I left. I didn't want to have a whole lot of stuff in a mate's garage back in Cape Town. Um, sure. I think that would have been for me partially, as I say, wanted to try and get every cent I could. But also, it's almost like almost like a mental hedge that if you leave yep. stuff at home. It's almost like preparing for failure. Like if you after six months in, you go like I'm missing my okay, mates. Yeah. It's a bit tough. Like you know, I can go back to Cape Town, pick up my life, and start again. It's almost mm-hmm. like yeah, you're preparing for that. Where, um, yeah, I was just. Yeah, and you are you know, single like, at this point? You got no, you got no partner or anything. Sorry, yeah, that's what, yeah. Sorry, I was trying. Not, I wasn't trying to avoid the question, but no, sort of sad bachelor, no wife, no kids, no serious okay. relationships. So, uh, yeah, so I guess that made that. Much not 100% made it, much, and that's probably one of the reasons that it, you know, well, obviously at that stage. So when she started that journey, I was 38. Um, okay. So, yeah, so, yeah, as you say, and obviously most of my mates at that stage and people that you hang around a lot, you know, married with kids, and, uh, you know, and, and for sure, you know, you know, there's always, you can always make a plan to go and do a one or, my, one or two month trip, but yeah, obviously a two year journey would be slightly different. Um, so, yeah, that I definitely, and I, and I, you know, in hindsight, it was quite old to be doing something like this for your first time. Um, but yeah. at the same time, you know, probably a lot of life experience that I'd accumulated and, you know, I'd be lucky enough to travel and was, you know, quite worldly at the stage, I guess. So that probably all helped, um, give me yeah. the confidence. Um, but it was weird. I mean, I broke my wrist a few months before I left, um, which was pretty stupid. I got roped into, so basically what happened, uh, I started setting everything I owned, I bought a bicycle online and then I started telling people But amazing that okay. difference between saying, and I set a yeah. date, this is like six months, four or five, sorry, maybe five months before I'm leaving. I said on the okay. first of so end of 2012, I started telling people, I said, 1st of May next year, I'm leaving Cape Town Stadium. 
I'm cycling through every country in Africa, and I'll ultimately, this is where the World Cup comes in a bit, but, and I'm going to finish at the World Cup in England. That's giving you something to okay. aim for. And yeah. I think people, and I've already bought the bicycle, I've already got my passport renewed, I've already got, you know, I've got dual nationalities, I've got that passport, other passport renewed. Now, so I've gone through all this. So people are like, oh, wow, Ron is serious about this. This isn't just a plan that's, you know, that's. He's not just you know, hungover. Not just hungover. Yeah, it's not just a, yeah, it's not just like one of those big ideas you get in the pub. So, and I must say that attitude certainly helped me get people on board to realize it to yes. take me seriously, um, which made a big difference. So, um, but obviously at the same time, a lot of people are saying, you know, I have the, the, the common concerns that people have, you know, what about malaria? What about kidnapping? What about, you know, just the, the perceived risk of, risks of Africa and the unknown? And, uh, you know, I think at that stage I was, you know, again, I'd read so many stories about people doing these big adventures and, you know, doing trips mm-hmm. around the world. And over and over and over again, the message was clear. Like 99.99% of people aren't out there to get you. Um, and yeah. sometimes the countries that, you know, are the most feared in inverted commas actually end up being the most friendly. And, you know, the only time that mm. a country, the only time Somalia is ever in the news is because there's a bomb in Mogadishu. Or the only time that there's a, Kenya is ever in the news is when there's some drama in, in Nairobi. So, but 99.9% of the time, those countries are never in the news, you know. And so, yeah. it, it's, anyway, so I, you know, I, but, but to be honest, most people were very supportive, and which was, which was incredible. And, um, and then, um, by this stage, I'd, you know, I'd moved out of my apartment. Um, I'd given up my lease. I was living a, with, with a mate of mine, and he actually coached one of the social rugby teams at UCT. Um, and this is now like two or three months before I'm leaving, or maybe two months before I'm leaving. And he phones me one afternoon. He says, Ron, there's this American NBA school. They're out from the States. And they're on a rugby tour. Um, and, and we've got the social game against them this afternoon. We're, we're missing a few players. Can you come down? I said, Matt, you of all people, I'm living with it. <laughs> you, know, I used to, you of all people, I said, the last thing I can afford to do is break my leg. You know, like I've got, I'm leaving in two months. And he says, no, yeah. Foran, what's the worst that can happen? He's a bunch of Americans. I've got no idea. Um, anyway, <laughs> one of those, I had a little scooter at the time, shot down to UCT, uh, literally arrived two minutes before kickoff, put my boots on, ran onto the field, and off the literally off the kickoff, trying to make a tackle, and hit this guy in the chest that broke my wrist against his chest, basically. <laughs> so, um, and it was ended up being a pretty serious break, which required surgery. Uh, and I, I went and I said to the doc, and the doc to, happened to be a, like a key mountain biker. So I sent him all on my trip and I said, Doc, I need to leave on the 1st of May. And he said, Ron, I'm telling you now, you will physically not be able to put your hand, you will not be able to ride a bike in, I can't remember the, the time frames now, but he said, it'll be too soon. Uh, but delay your trip by a month. Um, and I was like, oh my God, like, anyway. So yeah, this is like the first big, sort of crack in things you know i haven't even left mm. so i go through the, and then I, might, you know, I woke up the next day you know wake up you come out of surgery and it's you know you make peace with the facts and you say okay well maybe it gives you an extra month to get a sponsor or something like that it's just be a bit more prepared um but a bit you know but i really was quite a but at the same time i was like so determined to have the start date but i changed yes. my mentality like for me the adventure really started the day i decided to do it it, it decision, wasn't yes. it was a decision so um and as the doctor said to me he said right like you got to like what happens if you break your wrist after day one? You know, you're still going to have to stop for six weeks. So, you know, like it's, you're just stopping six weeks before you started. Like it's, it's the same journey. Yeah. So, um, yeah. anyway, and then fast forward six weeks, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I went back into surgery for just to have the plates taken out. And it was, it was supposed to be super simple. I had, I even had meetings planned that afternoon. And anyway, I woke up and I'm sitting in the ward, like with this big bandage over my arm. And I thought, gee, this is not what I was expecting. And I looked at the watch and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, I was expected to be out of here like 10 a.m. 
So, you know, literally pushed like the, the panic, the nurse, like call the nurse. She comes running and she goes, what's happening? I said, like, and I'm, you know, obviously drowsy. And I said, what's happening? Why am I here? She's, what's going on? And she says, you know, no, you've just had surgery. You've got to relax. I said, well, I'm supposed to be out of here. I was supposed to be out of here this morning. She says, no, it was a, it was a long operation. <clears throat> anyway, so she calls the doctor. Eventually, he comes down. He says, you know, Ron, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, the first op didn't work. You know, and, and so he didn't, but he needed my permission. But on my next of kin form, he knew I was, so I put my mate, Matt, that I was living, like, I just put him as my, like, as my contact. Yeah. So what he, the doctor did in surgeries, he actually phoned Matt and said, listen, Matt, this is a bit out the normal, but, you know, I understand the pressure that runs under, but I need your permission as his next of kin to go ahead and do this other operation. Because um, it's the only, you know, otherwise we'd have to rebook him in to come back and it'll just delay his trip. Which is amazing of him, you know. So, yeah. Anyway, the long story short, Matt said, "Of course, that's what he went done." So, so anyway, that delayed the trip by another month. So, um, by the time I eventually got to the start line, I was two months late. Um, and from that moment, I broke my wrist. The moment I left was probably about four months. I did not do one bit of exercise. I physically, like, I couldn't. I was living on a couch. I ballooned to about 120 kilograms or 118 kilograms, which is I probably put on 10 yeah. kilos. Um, so I was literally the fattest and unfittest of my entire life. That moment I started the trip, and I look back at photos wow. now, like I am a slob, eh? and um, <laughs> and um, I'm on this bike, and I've never the bike that I bought only arrived after I broke my wrist. So it's the first day I ever rode that bike in my life. Was the day I was leaving, pretty low touring bike, you know, forty kilos, or whatever. And a whole lot of my mates came to ride with me from Cape Town Stadium to Franchuk was going to be day one, and Cape Town to Franchuk in a normal world is pretty straightforward. Like it's, you know, for a road cyclist, it's one big hill from Stenebush and it's, you know, it's a couple of, you know, three or four hours. So we told all the wives and girlfriends and husbands and boyfriends to meet us in front of and we're having a big bride. Um, but it took us, we got there about three in the afternoon. I mean, I was the, you know, going up Hellswerte, which is a big climb from Stenebush to front yeah. I literally had mates with their hands pushing me on my back. And I'm sure behind my back they were going like, shit, if Ron can't get to Franschuk, how in the world is he ever going to get to London? Uh, but I knew, I just knew Alex. Like I, it was the longest day, one of the longest days of my life on a bike. It was the middle of, you know, I was, it was just, I was a mess by the time I was arrived. I was, you know, cramped. I was just, I was a wreck. But I, that day one was done and the journey was yeah, underway. How was, how, and, and how was your wrist? Was it okay? Was it painful? Yeah, I was in a brace, and it was it was it was if you had a pothole, it was pretty sore and things like that. And it took months before it really. I mean, still to this day, it's, I've got no real mobility in it, and still to this yeah. day, if I had a big bump, I can feel it. But no, it was it was to be honest with you, the rest at that stage was the least of my problems. Um, when I got to Mozambique a few months later, and you know, it was it was really tough riding. It, it came back to haunt me a little bit then, but um, but the significant thing was that the for me the journey was underway. And again, I think. Yeah. And I knew, but I always say, Alex, like, I just knew I was going to get to London. Like, I knew that, and I always use the example, unless I was cr- hit by a truck in the Congo, I don't know why I always use that example, I am going to get finish this journey. Like, uh, the power of the, you know, the, for me, like, I was all in. Thoughts, yeah. mm-hmm. I was 100% all, like, it was no, I'd given up everything to make this journey happen. I'd done all the preparation and planning and thought about every scenario, you know, all the things you can't control, how's going to organize visas all that sort of thing and housing organized mm-hmm. currencies and whatever, but all my bank cards and all the basic stuff of life. Um, and I just had the confidence in myself, I guess that, you know, I'd committed to this journey and, um, and yeah, I was just 100% all in. And I was, and for the first time I was completely focused on just one thing, yeah. uh, you know, all, and yeah. And I got a very, 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 very long story. 27 months later, I stumbled into London and, and made it. And, uh, you know, the whole, and that's, 
I don't know if, you, if you've missed a piece there, but so it was for the World Cup in London. Yeah, so what happened was this journey was now two, two and a half years. And yeah, I, was, yeah. I was going to be taken to Cairo after every country in Africa. And I said, well, to give myself yeah. something to aim for, the World Cup's taking place in 2015. So okay. let, yeah. me, let me finish there. That gives me a deadline. Um, and so the journey was always about Africa. And, and I thought, worst case scenario, yeah. I'll fly from Cairo to Paris. And sure. I'll cycle it from Paris. You know, if that's yeah. what, and, but as it turns out, I actually got to quite a, I got to Cairo in quite good, well, probably about five or six months before the World Cup. So okay. it took me about 22 months to, to so that, that, so the African leg of the journey, which was, which to be honest with what it was all about, Cape Town yeah. to Cairo, 48 countries, 30 something thousand kilometers took me 22 months. Um, wow. And then I, I actually jumped on a flight to Istanbul and I flew and I okay. cycled from Istanbul all the way through Europe, which was like, it was the middle of summer. It was obviously so easy at this stage compared to cycling yeah. Africa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and then cycled into France from Paris. And then my final destination was actually Brighton on the south coast okay. of the UK where South Africa was playing their first game. We played against Japan. Japan. So my reward yeah, yeah. after cycling for two and a half years to go watch the <laughs> World Cup was to watch, us, which was <laughs> watch us lose Japan in the opening game. So that was the punchline. Yeah, but now you were just a spectator. Now you weren't actually connected to the World Cup, other than going to watch it. Now, no, no, no. So that, that's exactly yeah, yeah. right. So that I was a completely just. I'm mean, a keen fan. Um, yeah. I was lucky enough that you know through a few players and things like that, I managed to organise some tickets. But yeah, I was just a I was just a fan. And but it did. Um, but I, I laugh about that Japan game. But it actually, in some ways, did give me some credibility because my trip had been relatively. I'd say low key in, in some ways. Like it was, you know, I had a Facebook page and my mates were following me and done one or two like radio interviews and things along the way, but it was relatively low key. And it was, you know, I didn't have any big sponsors or, you know, I wasn't doing anything big charity wise. It was really a personal journey, you know? And, um, yeah. but as I got, but coming into Brighton, I actually did an interview on, on, on a local BBC radio ch- um, on the morning of the game. Yeah. So I just arrived in Brighton, uh, yeah, so right in Brighton, let's call it third, Friday night, Saturday morning, went for a radio interview on like BBC South Coast or whatever. I don't know how many hundreds of people, dozens of people listened to that. But, and it was like, yeah. you know, it was, it was Ron, you know, congratulations on reaching the UK. I heard, you know, tell us a little bit about your trip through Africa and it was, and blah, blah, blah. And then what do you think about the World Cup? And I said, well, you know, obviously looking forward to watching South Africa. I think playing Japan this afternoon will be a, you know, Japan will always come out firing, maybe put us under pressure for half and we'll, you know, probably win by three or four tries. And that was probably exactly what I thought. Um, oh, and sorry, the other thing I forgot to say was, so during this journey, uh, um, I went to John Smith and Francois Pino, and for those of you who know to your rugby or South Africans, they are the two South African captains that led the South Africa to previous yeah. World Cups in 95 and 2007. So I got them to both write a letter of good luck to the team of 2015 um, okay. that I carried with me. So that was my kind of like symbol of the journey. So I didn't read the letters. They went for my, they were addressed to the team, and they both gave me letters in an envelope, which I carried with me the whole way. And we haven't even had a chance to talk about some of the right stories in the trip, but obviously myself, my bike and my positions, you know, it was, some, it was a tough, t- you know, I looked after those things carefully. Let me put it like that. So, sure. Um, yeah. And then anyway, so I did this radio. So I arrived in Brighton, actually went to the team hotel, delivered it to Jean de Villiers, who was our captain. And he was like, Ron, you know, when you told me about this trip before you left, I was like, you know, good luck, boss. But you know, you know, you know. Let's see how this <laughs> goes. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, "Well, well done on making it." And then we chatted about the fans, about you know, look how crazy it is. How, you know, what have you done to get here? But look at all the South Africans, um, you know, around the streets of 
of, of Brighton in their green jerseys and you know the Rams 22 to 1 or whatever it was at the stage so anyway and then I gave him these letters from from John and and and, um, and Francois and then I went to go to this radio interview um, and then the next day I went to the game um, and obviously as as history will show South Africa lost to Japan and, and, and what was the biggest upset ever in international rugby history Japan were nothing the team like they are today um, and it was it was it was such a big story that it actually made like front page of CNN, not even so CNN Sports. It was like it's like the other day. I mean, I, I'm in Argentina. Argentina just lost to Saudi Arabia. It was like that kind yeah. of upset in the football, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and so the next morning after watching this game, and I was quite pragmatic. I was like, you know, obviously it's a shock to watch South Africa lose, but this is, does kind of feel like a you know I was there moment. It's just a pity we were on the receiving end of it. So you know, maybe it's a mm. historic end, a historic journey <laughs> in a different sort of yeah. not quite there. If we'd stumbled to a three-point victory, it just wouldn't have felt significant at all. But anyway, the next morning I woke up and I got a call from a, a, a guy, Daily Telegraph, one of the big broadsheet newspapers in the UK, and he said, Ron, I got your number from, I heard your interview yesterday on BBC, got your number from the, the producer, hope you don't mind me calling you, but I just thought I've, you know, as a obviously a South African fan who went to probably log more lengths than anybody else to be here yesterday at the game, um, <laughs> you know, you got some comments, you know. So I said, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's t- I was telling him all about Trust for Africa and these people that, you know, kind of saved my life and the kindness of the of the generosity of the most ordinary people in the world. I told him this whole story. And anyway, I just thought it was going to be like a tiny little paragraph at the end of it, you know, at the, you know kind of a little joke. But yeah. And then anyway, on Monday morning I wake up and I've just got like a barrage of messages on my phone. And anyway, it's, it's basically like a half a page and it's like, oh, wow. I cycled 27,000 miles dot, dot, dot to see my team humiliated. And basically, oh. the whole the whole gist of his story was about like how I just wasted twenty seven months of my life, you know. So I think oh, you missed no. the point a little bit, but uh, yeah. but anyway, that you got some publicity. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah, it was, and I was at the stage doing a little bit of fundraising for. That's a long story, but they helped boost the coffers on that a bit. And um, you know, next thing I was like, being I've been living on a tent for two and a half years, you know, on a very very low budget, eating literally samp and beans and you know next thing i was being whisked around london like limousines from like bbc to cnn to itv studios doing like live news broadcasts about this this idiot that gone and watched this game so um but it's all quite fun and uh yeah i mean that just there then and i finished that journey um, alex like i had no idea what would come out of it i was completely broke maxed out every credit card um but i knew my life would never be the same again like it's you know sure. it's it was a for me, it was really was a sort of midlife confidence boost that, you know, if I can dream up cycling through every country in Africa and actually pull it off, um, you know, anything is possible. Like, and, it, you know, in some ways, you, with reflection down the line, you look back and you maybe realize how much I underestimated myself at almost every other stage mm. of my life, whether it's my schoolwork, mm. my rugby mm. career, my businesses that I tried. Like, it always been with its, I'd always had certain expectations of what I could achieve. Um, and I realized now how limited those expectations were. And now yeah. I've done something literally the hardest thing I could have dreamt up on a bike, pulled it off, and I thought, wow, this anything is possible. And um, yeah, and that led to yeah, I'm going to just okay, go straight yeah. into it. Yeah. I, I think I think uh, you know what I'd really like to focus on. We've got at least two more hours to talk about this. I don't want yeah. to 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 make this too long an episode now, but I can see us having two more conversations in the next uh, couple of weeks to to build up to it. But I would like to tie it all together just in this point now, Ron. I know you, you you're busy and you've got a few other appointments lined up for yourself as well today. From the end of that journey, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of different people on the show, and one of the one of the standout things that 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 I'm thinking about right now is. 
uh, a lady by the name of Kath Bishop, world champion rower, Olympic medalist, and she'd been through the journey of ups and downs. And we spoke about the Olympic gold and that that I can't remember the syndrome, but that you you finished <laughs> the Olympics yesterday. Even if you got five gold medals, tomorrow who are you? And you start all over again. Tell me about that moment. Now you're in London. You're broke. You're probably broken, and yeah. uh, you know your life is better, and you've got this a bit of a high. But what next? Like, what what is those next few weeks and months of your life? What are you thinking of? What do you do? Do you fly back home? Where do you start? Home is your bicycle no. at this point. No, it's a good question, Alex. And I've spoken to sports friends of mine who've won medals and things like that. And you wake up on a, the day after the tournament, your medal's next to your bed. And again, mm. so all, the whole sense of purpose is gone. Yeah. yeah. It really, it's, it's like, because for now, this was a two and a half years on the road plus six months of playing. So it's effectively three years of my life. I, you know, and that's, you know, I'd proven to myself. And then without just throwing out corny cliches, like the power of the made-up mind is a powerful thing. The power of focus oh, is a powerful thing. But, you, you know, and with routine, that focus... Being, routine, get on your bicycle yeah. every day and cycle. Yeah, you cycle 100 kilometers, you wake up, do it again, you do that 800 times and you cycle around the world a few times, you know? So it really is that simple. Like it's, um, <laughs> But it's, yeah, and all of that is so powerful. But as you say, like the next morning you wake up and you literally got, well, what's happening tomorrow? Um, and I guess I had a little bit of a fortunate buffer from that reality is because... I just arrived beginning of the World Cup. Um, I had friends in London that I was staying with that I knew I was going to spend the whole World Cup there. Um, and, you know, some people took sympathy on me and, you know, made sure that I, you know, yeah, certainly like, I was treated like a king, to be fair, to be honest. People would, you know, all my mates were like, take me out for dinners and things. So, like, it was, I was looked after from that point of view. Um, as I say, I, I stayed there for the whole tournament. So I went to, you know, a lot of games. Um, I started I actually carried on taking a little bit of cycling right, sometimes between the U- in the UK with a few other games. So um, I guess I was on this. I had this bit of a high to be able to you know reconnect with with mates mm. and and the real world and just enjoy the tournament. Um, and that was, mm. but it wasn't all easy. You know, you get to you know sometimes you know you are waking up in the yeah you, know, you just had this wild adventure and you know there's just that sort of waking up on a mate's couch in London and you know like a little bit hungover and you go like this is just like so average compared to the experience I've been having in the last two years. But mm. anyway, but overall it was massively positive. Um, and then it was, I mean, it's, it's so much to talk about, but um, on the, I actually met a guy who very generously during the tournament said, Ron, like, how are you getting home? Like it's a standard joke, he's cycling home kind of thing. I said, well, I haven't even booked a flight. And to be honest, I'm, but you know, it's quite punchy getting home, you know? So yeah. he said, well, okay, I, I'm going to, he, and he lived in, actually lived in the Seychelles. So he said, Ron, I'm going to do you okay. a favor. He said, I'm going to fly you home. But on one condition, you've got, or back to South Africa, but on one condition, you're going to come back via the Seychelles. So, A, I was just super no, grateful to you. Are you going to go back to South Africa via Seychelles? Yeah, he said, I'll fly you back, yeah. but you've got to come visit yeah. me and the Seychelles on the way back. So I said, okay, yeah. well, that seems like a fair deal. And, yeah, but that, to be honest, <laughs> by the end of the tournament, I was just like, I just, and then it, like, it, you know, it felt like a little bit of a chore, to be honest, at the end. Like, I'll be very, very honest, because I was like, you know, it'd been, been on the road two and a half years. I'd been in London for six, or well, the UK six weeks and I it was busy and I was tired and I was, and I, and, and I just felt like, you know, I didn't really have a home to go back to, but just felt like go back to Africa and just sitting, you're just chilling out for a little bit. And uh, anyway, but I went to the Seychelles, uh, spent a couple of days there, then flew back, then flew to Joburg and I had a couple of like little media things I was doing. And then I started feeling rubbish. Eh? And it turns out I actually mm. picked up chicken pox in, oh, um, shit. In, in the Seychelles. So that's why I sort of added that bit of the story. So I, a mate of mine looked there, his son had chicken pox, and I assumed I'd always had chicken pox as a kid, but obviously not. So now I arrived yeah. back in SA and I was just, uh, you know, I'm, uh, and chicken pox is the adults, not fun, eh? So I was. No. Was, yeah, so I was really man down. So it really wasn't the most sort of glamorous or, you know, I sort of stumbled my way back. And um, 
and yeah, and really did struggle, Alex. Like it was, um, yeah. I mean, you you have that initial high of just you know reconnecting with people and and that sort of thing, and then mm-hmm. and then it's like the reality of like, where's my next? Where am I? You know, how am I going to start getting back on my feet? Um, mm. What what or what am I doing? Like I just wake up every day with nothing to do, basically, other than sort of stressing about. And where where are you with a mate with your folks? Where are you at this point? No, so I was just, yeah, I was actually staying with friends in Joburg. Eh? Um, some mates okay. of mine got a like a little cottage above their garage, and uh, so that was the yeah. Okay. Um, down there for it. Came out there for a bit, and yeah, um, but but yeah, I think for me the the anecdote to that was to was to get another you know, and I started doing some speaking. You know, you realize that people just wanted to hear my story. And again, that's I guess where that, that sort of free publicity helped in there a little bit. So um, started doing some speaking stuff, and then you know realized people actually paid to hear you talk about your journey. So oh, that's cool. So yeah, yeah. so yeah, I kind of found that world, and, uh, and again, it helped being a you know I had to get back on my feet and you know you know pay back a few people a bit of money, but it wasn't like you know I only had myself to look after, which which made a big difference mm. as well. So I got back on my feet like that, and um, did one two little bit of yeah and. Uh, I know so much to talk about, but yeah, I started planning the next thing. And um, okay, before you before you start talking about planning the next thing, okay, so you've you're back in Joburg. Generously, your friends have given you a place to stay, so you have got a roof over your head. Presumably, there's probably some food attached to us. All these speaking gigs are allowing you a bit of money to look after yourself, literally with food and <laughs> water and beers. Uh, you might even be doing the odd cycle every now and then. I presume not too much at some point, but. Yeah. Uh, what are you thinking about? Is there any thought that says get a job and earn a salary and go to work nine to five, or is that not even on the radar? Um, no, it, I think it like yeah, you know, you know, you start so you do you start like was this just a once off trip that I'll look back with mm. with the greatest of fondness forever? Is this like an, I'll look back as an adventure of a lifetime as a one off? And a lot of people do, you know, a lot of again people that I've met and a lot of people do go and do have a crazy year off going. You know, drive a motorbike around the world, and then I'll go back and you know go back into normal back, life back and to work. Yeah. back to work, and which is amazing, you know, because ninety nine percent of people never do that. So you know, at least they've done that year off. But I, I just felt I just could not face the idea of going back to normal nine to five. Like I, I really at all didn't it, even come it, across the radar. Um, it, I, I couldn't. It, it came across the radar as is perhaps that's what I should do. Perhaps that is yes. the, the, that is like the, the sensible the thing sensible. now. Is this the, is your dad speaking to the fifteen-year-old Ron once again. Yeah, it's like, what are you going to do now, kind of thing, exactly. And um, and you know, and I guess you know, I had enough experience that I, you know, I probably could have quite easily slotted in and found a job. You know, maybe not South Africa might not be that easy, but I could have probably easily gone back to London or Hong Kong and you know, talk pulled out the old CV, and I probably could have found something. You know, middle middle management middle office middle you know some middle tier somewhere and, and <laughs> looking, for, looking forward to your leave and going for going away on adventures uh, twice a year for yeah, 10 days <laughs> yeah so it was yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it definitely did cross my mind in terms of like but i think in my heart i knew that i, Edward, I couldn't do it like it was so it was it was it was a it was probably a it was something i thought about but i think in my heart i just uh, i knew that my life was never going to be different but i couldn't know how like i just it was it you know i think that was the thing it was it was going to be different and i'd seen a different way of life and um mm. i'd seen what happens when you allow yourself to think massive dreams and massive thoughts and massive plans and uh, you know and i and okay. again like I, I had the sense of confidence that i could probably make something work because i i'd made this crazy trip work 
why couldn't I make something else work? Why couldn't I make exactly? Well, yeah. This is this is a, a very selfish thing. These are I've been I've been dancing around the my selfish thoughts here. So let, let me open up a little bit to you here. You can be my coach for the next couple of minutes, and we'll see where this goes. I'm in this phase now, exactly like you. I've had the most amazing and crazy and up and down and uh you know personal growth so we connected with luke uh, i'm not sure if you just know luke from the neighborhood or he was actually at school with you because you're probably a similar age and stage as uh, luke dylan but in the neighborhood yeah so I've, I've worked with him for the last year as a coach and uh through through the process of working with him i really have figured out who alex is what alex likes what alex wants what alex doesn't want and and the authentic self has come through Together with that, getting retrenched from an airline job, fancy, you know, fancy hotels, fly around the world, uniform, shiny airplanes, and people admire you walking through the airport terminal, the whole picture that goes with it. Yeah. It was a stable career, pension, fly off into the sunset, and you get holidays and you, you know, that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's gone. And at the same time, the whole world turns on its head. It's not that I just get booted, but the, the whole world is different. And I see a couple of business opportunities, two, three or four different businesses kick off seemingly out of nowhere. Very lucky. I seize upon the opportunity. I've written down so many things that you've said, yeah, but some of the things are like, just start, do something, take me seriously, then announce what you're doing. And, and I, uh, the thing that I've been living by the last couple of years is just start, course correct as you go. Yeah. Now, a couple of my businesses wound up in the last um, six months. Uh, one was quite significant. I had to let 40-odd people go, and the other one, about 15, eventually got full-time employment elsewhere. So I was, it was kind of labor work, so I put them into the, the client side permanently, but it meant I had no business. Happy for the people, not so happy for me, and I ended up taking a flying job again, and I hadn't really been flying in two years. It was a private owner flying, and it was a, a temporary thing just to see how I could help him out. He was a neighbor and a friend. It was a beautiful thing. It was never going to be long-term. But the passion for flying really fired up once again. We flew this little airplane. I was teaching him how to fly. I'm a flying instructor anyway. Uh, we flew low level all over the northeastern part of South Africa, spotting the zebras and the giraffes every morning. It was beautiful. Sharing with his family. I got a friend of mine involved too. We were both in the Air Force together. We got to do amazing stuff. And I realized that I, I can't just keep doing this because this is not enough. I need to do more. And at the same time, I didn't have a lot of time to do my podcast, which is a real passion of mine too. So I then applied back to an airline job. It's brought me back to Cape Town. I'm from Cape Town. And here I am back in the airline job, back in a familiar place. And it's spectacular. And every day, as you say, every day is a bit routine. But look for the, look for the extraordinary in the mundane. And I do that every day. I mean, I th I've been telling people and I think people see it as well. I feel like a cancer survivor. I feel like I've, I've, uh, I've taken over a, a new lease of life in some respects. But there is also a big part of me that's niggling and it's getting louder every day that this isn't enough. I can't keep going yeah. up and down to Joburg every day. As spectacular as it is, I can't do it because I need more of the time for me to do crazy things. I've been yeah, thinking stop, about yeah. cycling around Africa or uh, the world or going for a long walk and in 10 months just see where I am. That kind of stuff really resonates with me and there's no ways I can do it as an airline pilot. So, I mean, yeah. these last few days, I just uh, uh, the crazy thoughts of just like, you know what, keep your job, I'm done, and I'll figure it out. Yeah. But obviously, that's a bit of a nerve-wracking thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, I'm all ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know your personal circumstances in terms of family and wife and kids and responsibilities, like that sort of thing. But uh, my first instinct is to say, well, I'm I'm on the road for the next 230 days. So if you want to come for six months or a month or two months and come cycle through Central America or, or somewhere like that. Yeah. And so that sounds um, incredible. I, I that do have a fixed deadline of, of the 8th of September in uh, 8th of September in Paris next year. But uh, yeah, sort of plugging my way. So that, that that's, you know, like it's, 
Are you looking for wingmen like from, from time to time? I mean, does that, uh, does that cramp your style or do you enjoy it? No, so I've had, no, I've had different, ex- I mean, I've done the African triples on my own, but even that was uh, for, like, I did have a, t- like a 10 day, sorry, 10 mates actually, again, in the days when SAA flew to Accra, I had 10 mates came and joined me for the stint in Ghana, uh, oh, the direct nice. flight, and, and I'd been on the road sort of 18 months or so at that stage, and for them, none, none of them ever been to Ghana, and, uh, you know, so they came and joined me for sort of along the Cape Coast there for, from Accra to basically the, the, the Ivory Coast border. Um, and what a jewel that was, you know. Um, and, okay, good. Yeah. And then in 2019, I did a ride from London to Japan, and that time it was with somebody else. Um, and we had, you know, he had a couple of mates join for a, few, a week or two here and there. And um, so, no, it's it's as long as people are happy to sort of fit into the, I guess, my routine, um, they're welcome. And it, it's it's very lucky. You know, it's, it's, you know, which I've just cycled through New Zealand before this, and uh, a Kiwi mate of mine who's been promising for years to come and join me on one of my trips, he'd always sort of, oh, I'm going to come and join you, come and join you, and never happened. And that also happens a lot. You know, life mm-hmm. gets in the way. And um, eventually, yeah. he, he phones me, says, I'm coming. I booked my flight to Invercargill in from Auckland, and uh, he met us, in, met us in Invercargill, and he spent, yeah, he cycled the length of New Zealand with us. He's exploring his own country. He's got three kids at home. Um, and uh, he says the best month of his life. He just don't tell his wife that he said, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, <laughs> sure. but he said, yeah, like he's been living vicariously through my journeys for 10 years, and uh, my, he's just got a bigger glimpse into the world, you know, and it's his own, it's, and, he, and just seeing his own country through different eyes. Yeah. So, uh, and, yeah, so okay, then, not, yeah, you're probably speaking to the right person as opposed to the wrong oh, person. In terms of right, looking, cool. if you're looking for the encouragement just to, you're always going to get back on your feet. You're always going to make a plan. You've, you've made uh, how many hundreds of plans you made in your life? Like, mm. you know, go do something crazy. Go walk, walk from Cape to walk from Cape Town to Nairobi or whatever. Go and do something wild. And it's, um, mm. well, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I've I never, see myself ever, doing ever, here's a bit of a, Here's a bit of advice, Alex. No, I've yep. never ever met anybody who's done something like this and regretted it. Never, not once. Not yeah. once has anybody said, oh, "I wish I hadn't walked, walked around." You know, I mean, I, I walked across Mongolia. I never. I wish I hadn't taken that motorcycle trip with my brother and you know done this. I wish. I, no one's. I've never ever heard anybody regret it. So, um, um, that's, so that's if, if yeah, honestly, no one ever does something like this and says, "Oh, you know." It's, <laughs> uh, you know, I should have rather, you know, I should have rather stuck my job out. You know, it's, you know really, and that's genuine. So. Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, it, it's it's fascinating talking with you, Ron. It really is. Um, and uh, you know, I really think that we haven't even scratched the surface. I'm sure you're feeling the same way. I do want to schedule yeah. another time. So maybe in about two weeks' time, we can have episode two because we haven't even connected the dots with your first Rugby World Cup. Never mind yeah. uh, the, the one you're on now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. but 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 just maybe just for the for the benefit of, of where you are now, can you just explain yeah. uh, uh, so what's this journey and, and you know, what, what's the support team, who you're riding for, how you can tie it all together and get a bit of a shout out yeah. to? Yeah, so um, my African trip, as I, say, I knew it was going to change my life completely and it really has. So 10 years later, I'm still at it. Um, I'm now 20 days into a 300-day journey cycling from Auckland to Paris. Uh, the, the only two continents I haven't cycled until this point in my life are the Americas. So I planned the route completely selfish again to include as much of the Americas as possible. So I left Auckland on the 12th of November. Um, I've been presented with the match whistle for the official game, opening for the, the official match whistle for the opening game of the tournament uh, in, in Paris. Uh, this is, in fact, the fourth World Cup I'm cycling to, the third one I'm doing in an official capacity, the third one I'm delivering a whistle, um, and the third one I'm actually raising funds for Child Fund Rugby. So you might be able to see my shirt here. Child Fund Rugby is it. a... 
it's a sport development a sport for development program um, that uses rugby basically very broad, um, simply to teach life skills to young people who don't have opportunities that you know we all take for granted. So it started in Southeast Asia. It's now expanded to Oceania. They're now doing some work in South Africa and other parts of Africa as well. So um, they were the official charity partner of the World Cup in, in Japan. They were the official charity partner of the Women's World Cup that's just taking place in New Zealand. Um, and they are a international charity partner of the World Cup taking place in France. So um, I've visited them many times. Um, and, you know, this will be epi- stuff for episode two, but talking about having a bigger purpose to what I'm doing. Um, mm. You know, when you are when, when, when you are cycling over the Andes or, you know, waking up and there's snow outside your tent or it's headwinds or whatever it is, um, having a slightly bigger purpose or much bigger purpose certainly does uh, make those decisions to get up in the morning much easier. So, yeah, um, race to rugbyworldcup.com is the website. It's not, it still needs a bit of updating um, from the previous trip. Um, I'm on my own for, for the time being uh, on this journey. Um, and yeah, in, I'm in Argentina, country three of 25 countries. So from here, it's up to Brazil, uh, Uruguay, Brazil, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras. El Salvador, um, uh, Guatemala, I probably got the order wrong there, Belize, Mexico, into the U.S., at the, in the, to Texas, up the north, up towards the northeast, and then from New York, fly across to Dublin, then cycle from Dublin to Edinburgh, to Cardiff, to London, to Paris. So that's the plan. Um, and uh, 20,000 something kilometers over the next two and something days, and um, yeah, I still got the buzz. I still got a, you know, this will, and this for me is a big journey because it's, It'll, it'll be, I would have now cycled, uh, by the time I get to France, probably 115, 120 countries on six continents. Yeah. Um, so I have kind of feel like I've seen it, a lot of the world uh, on the back of my bike. Um, I'll, I'll be 49 when I arrive in Paris. So, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, who knows what the future holds after this, but uh, I, I don't, yeah, so for me, there's definitely a feeding from a cycling, from World Cup to World Cup, definitely a feeling that this might be the one. Might be this is the grand finale. Uh, maybe have it handed over to the next generation. But hopefully it's a tradition that will carry on and uh, somebody else can mm. pick up the baton for the next tournament. Well, that's amazing, Ron. Uh, you said six continents. Have you cycled in Antarctica yet? Well, that's technically the seventh. So it's you know Africa, Europe, Asia, Oceania, and North and South America. So those are the, the classic six. And then yeah. Yeah, Antarctica okay. is the seventh. So I'd love to visit Antarctica one day. Um, I don't. I'm not one of these who wants to go and climb every peak of the world. So, uh, but yeah, I don't particularly enjoy the freezing, freezing, freezing cold. So uh, yeah, I might go visit one day, but I have no desire. Well, no real plans to go and do it on a bicycle. Oh, okay. Well, just a little yeah. fun story. So yesterday I was at Cape Town Airport, and uh, yeah. as much as you talk about the passion of cycling, you still got it after all this time and all these countries and all these thousands of kilometers. Fun little story. Uh, just about to fly to, to Joburg. We've returned from a flight tr- from the other side of the country back in Cape Town. We are a few minutes early, and there's an Airbus 340 operated by a, a company called High Fly that goes this time of year for a period of two or three months. They do VIP trips to, to Antarctica in this Airbus. And I used to fly the Airbus 340, so it's a beautiful-looking aircraft. It's painted nicely, etc. Now the aircraft's on the flight line. So I tell the guy, well, listen, can I take 10 minutes when I go say hello to the crew? You know, I've got a podcast. Maybe I can interview somebody that's flying into Antarctica. That's, uh, that's something quite special. Yeah. yeah, yeah, go for it. So off I go, chat to the crew and everything, get the contact. And I'm hopefully going to meet the guys next week when they're back. And uh, I come back to the cockpit. And there I see they're taxing out. Now, our passengers haven't arrived yet. So I'm, uh, I'm interested in this Airbus. I want to you know, watch it go. No, it's five yeah. and a half hours. They're going to be in Antarctica. 
So there they are lining up on the runway and, and we're facing towards the runway. So I stand on the top of the stairs in my aircraft and I get my camera out and I start filming and it's rolling down the runway. And just as it starts rolling, the bus arrives with the passengers. But now I can't do a little half a video. So I'm standing, we don't have a very big doorway in the CRJ. It's, you know, it's just a little bit wider than my shoulder width. So I'm standing at the top of the stairs for a bit of elevation. The thing's rolling in the bus parks. The passengers start walking. I'm like, oh, okay, here comes the passengers. And I'm thinking it's going to go a bit, no. So I'm still filming and the passengers are walking past me, climbing onto the plumbing. Sorry, guys, I just want to get this video quickly. <laughs> They're climbing in behind me. Anyway, so as we get going later on. Too professional. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, as we get going, I make an announcement. We're climbing across the, the Hellsworth there and we're on our way through to Joburg now. I say, hello, my name's Alex and uh, I was your pilot. On the, I'm, I'm your pilot flying you. I'm the guy who's standing on top of the stairs just now as you came on board. Sorry about that. But just an interesting story for those of you who might be interested. That Airbus is on its way to Antarctica. And in about five hours, I'll be landing in the ice. And I just thought that's amazing. I thought I'd share that with you. Fast forward another half an hour or so, I go off to the back to go find the bathroom and one of the guys stops, he says, hey, was that a, was that a Dreamliner? So we get talking, it's like, it's so good to see that you've still got the passion of aviation. So same kind yeah, of thing, like cool. after all these years, you know, to, to still have a sparkle uh, is something special. And so that's the kind of thing that I do actually appreciate, you know, it's not an easy decision to say, am I going to carry on flying or not? I'm going to carry on flying, but is it, is it going to be involved in a career or is it going to be involved in something different? Time will tell. But isn't it exciting, you know? Middle yeah. age, and yeah. you've got like this whole yeah. That's the thing. Is like it's. Uh, I, I've just spent a lot of time with people in the last few months, and a lot of like going through Australia and in particular, a lot of old mates and people, and just and like and what I, I was very inspired by was just how many people are doing something completely different. Like mm. uh, how many people have almost started like, you know, I had one mate who used to work in, in in banking in London. He's now got a swimming pool business in Brisbane, you know. And I think it's like he just loves it. You know, he builds pool fences. And it's yeah. just like he's outdoors every day and he's just, you know, he's, he's, yeah, it's just like it's so inspiring to see people that in their middle age have said, you know what, there's another route to life, there's another path and, you know, and whether it's a different career or a different business. Um, and you go like, yeah, this, is not, this is just the beginning of an of a, of a exciting second stage. It's not, it's not you don't want to just sort of, just sort of concede, not what's the word, not concede the right word, but just sort of, uh, you know, like you just, just accept, accept your lot of life. Yeah. Yeah. Ron, it's been uh, fantastic talking with you, and uh, you never know. Maybe in a couple of weeks' time, you'll have a wingman there with a bicycle. <laughs> but thanks so much for your time. You know I wish you all I the best. And, <laughs> yeah, day 20 of uh, 300, was it? 300? Correct, 300 on the nose, yeah. Well, uh, I wish you all the yeah. best. Thanks for making the time available today, and uh, all the best. I'll, I'll, I'll stay in touch and keep my eye and ear out for your progress. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Alex. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, mate. Cool. Take, thanks. Take care. Okay. Yeah. Thank you.